I well remember the first time that I was involved with Christianity Explored. It was back in, in the church that we went to in Glasgow, and we ran the first course starting on the 11th of September 2001. And if you're kind of quick enough to, to put that date together, you'll realize that it's now become etched in most people's memories as 9 11. And as we began Christianity Explored that night, it's kind of changed just a little bit since then. But, but the, the first thing that, that, that you discussed that night was, if you could ask God one question, and you knew that he would answer it, what would that question be? Well, I'm sure it will come as no surprise whatsoever to learn that the number one question that night was why? Why would God allow such a thing to happen? And that why question, or the where is God question, when something bad happens, is something that, that believers and non-believers alike have wrestled with down through time. And we can look at any scenario, any situation, and ask the why and the where, and the who, and the how. And I guess that the book of Job, and, and, and Job himself, is the one place that many people, they might not necessarily turn to, because I think it's actually quite a neglected book. But they would certainly think upon it. Well, let me just say that, that Christianity Explored have produced a, a little book, uh, I forgot to bring it with me, um, based on the 12 most uh, frequently asked questions that, 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 that people have asked at Christianity Explored. It's a great little book. So it's, a, it's a great evangelistic little book just to hand to people. Um, why does God allow suffering? Uh, if God is a God of love, why does he send people to hell? We've got questions like that. It's a really great little book, and, and we have some. And if I remember next time, I'll bring them. So as we begin this study in Job, we, we probably approach it with many questions and looking for answers. And that is to a certain extent understandable that, that actually sometimes there are no solutions. We don't always get an answer to the who, the why, the what, the where, the how. And so as we begin this study, which I actually do with a kind of great deal of nervousness and, 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 and a, a deeper than usual feeling of inadequacy, I, I pray that God will use it to draw each one of us into a closer relationship with him wherever, whatever, and however things come our way. I should also just mentioned passing that we're also studying this in our Wednesday kind of growth group probably at a far faster rate than we will here but anyway but as when I begin all new studies it really is important to understand something of the background which is really why I only read five verses but actually with the book of Job this is actually quite hard because we don't know who wrote it and we don't know 
when it was written. But that doesn't mean that what is written is any the less true. What we have before us are actual recordings of actual events. Job really did live. Job really did go through all the things that, that we will read he went through. All of these experiences. Ezekiel in chapter 14, verse 14 and verse 20, actually record the Lord speaking to, to Ezekiel and mentioning Job along with Noah and with Daniel. In the New Testament, James speaks of how those to whom he writes heard of Job's perseverance. And Paul twice in his letters quotes Job in Romans 11 verse 35 and 1 Corinthians 3 verse 19. So brothers and sisters, this is real. And as with all scripture, it is God-breathed. So don't get too hit up in who wrote it or when it was written. It is God-breathed in righteousness. And then we, we, we kind of sometimes just leave that verse there. But actually the next verse goes on to say, so that the man the woman of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Whoever it was who wrote it must have been a Hebrew. And I say that because he uses the Hebrew word Lord. And, and if you'll notice, particularly in the Old Testament, when you see the, the word Lord written in capital letters, that always relates to Yahweh. It is a long book. 42 chapters. And it is, as most scholars acknowledge, divided into three, as it were, sections. There is the prologue, which is kind of chapters 1 to 2. There then follows dialogue between Job and his friends, and then another guy that appears on the scene, and, and, and also with God. And, and, and that goes from chapter 3 right the way through to the beginning of chapter 42. And then there is the epilogue, the kind of closing verses of chapter 42. And that whole middle section from kind of chapter 3 right up to kind of four, chapter 41, that whole middle section is actually written as poetry. Something like 95% is poetry. And that actually makes a difference in how we read it and how it speaks to us and, and kind of in many ways poses a massive challenge to is that there is the danger that we just kind of deal with the prologue and then we just kind of skip to the epilogue. And we then kind of just see that all's well that ends well. But there are all of these chapters in between. And they are there, brothers and sisters, for a reason. And I think that they are there to show us that when suffering comes, as many of us can testify, there are no quick, easy solutions. The writer, inspired by the Holy Spirit, is actually in these chapters taking us on a journey through all kinds of emotions and, 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 and questions, because in instances like this, there are no instant answers. And we go through a whole gambit of emotions. 
As one writer says, there is no instant working through grief. There is no quick fix to pain. There is no message of Job in a nutshell. Indeed, it could well be argued that Job actually gets no answer anyway. And as I have read, and as I have studied and, and prayed probably more widely than for any other study, it, it seems to me that actually this is a book not so much about why the righteous suffer. As I said, Job doesn't really get any answer to that. I don't think it is a book as so much as to why the righteous suffer, but how should the righteous suffer? Do you see the difference? It's a massive difference. It's not about, I don't think it's, I don't think it's answering the questions of why the godly suffer. But in Job, we see how the godly can suffer. If we come looking for answers to the why, we will probably be disappointed. But if through this we see the how to, then we will be truly blessed, brothers and sisters, no matter what comes our way. Christopher Ash, in his book, gives what he calls four salient features, four markers which we really need to fix our mind on and get established. And he argues in his book that, that, that it is vital we understand them, otherwise we will be hopelessly confused when we get into the body of the book. Here's his four markers. The first is this. Job really is blameless. Job really is blameless. Here's the second one. Third one. The Lord is absolutely supreme. And then, rather troublingly, yet profoundly true and Bear with me, don't kind of throw me out. The Lord gives terrible permissions. Job really is blameless. Notice what verse 1 tells us. And then notice, perhaps more importantly, what God's verdict of Job is in verse 8. Have you considered my servant Job? There is no one on earth like him. He is blameless. He's not, he's not perfect. He's not sinless. But in God's eyes, he is blameless. Satan has real influence. Notice what verse 1 tells us. And then notice, sorry, Satan come, forget verse 1. Satan has real influence. He comes before God. And he brings disaster upon Job. Verses 9 and 11. And indeed most of chapter 1 and 2. So Satan has influence. The Lord is absolutely supreme. It is God who calls Satan to task. 
It is God who says to him, thus far, verse 6 and verse 12 and verse 6 of chapter 2. Yes, Satan has influence, but brothers and sisters, God is in control. Satan may be a roaring lion, but he is a chained lion. Lion. The, and, and we mustn't get it thinking that this is some kind of, um, this is maybe not the right phrase to use, but I'll use it, kind of a, a ding-dong battle between God and Satan and, and kind of God has the upper hand one minute and then Satan has the upper hand the next. No, no. God, God is absolutely supreme. And then the Lord gives terrible permissions. This is a hard one. Notice, for instance, verse 12. The Lord said to Satan, Very well then, everything he has is in your hands, but on the man himself do not lay a finger. The Lord says, Very well then, everything he has is in your hands. The same is said in chapter 2, verse 6. Very well then, he is in your hands. God gives Satan permission. And Satan goes out and Satan does with that permission what he seeks to do best and to turn Job from God. You see, one of the overriding or the overriding question in the whole book of Job is this. Will Job prove to be but for who God is? And we were thinking on that a couple of weeks ago, from John, just last week, from John's Gospel. So that is something of an introduction. And I encourage you to read Job for, for yourself, I encourage you, please, as I know many of you do, to pray for me as I study, and I'll pray for you as you have to listen. And as we work our way through uh, at whatever pace seems right. So to the text itself, and I just have three really simple points, and that's probably the first and last time that you'll hear that in relation to our studies, but three really simple points. We see, from, uh, we see that Job was a righteous man, that he was a rich man, and that he was a renowned man. Job was a righteous man. Job here is described as being blameless and upright, fearing God and shunning evil. As I said, this does not mean that he was sinless or perfect. In fact, in chapter 7, verse 21, he acknowledges his, his sin. But it does mean that he is a real believer in the living God. It does mean that he sought to live his life in both the to, as the verse tells us, shun evil. His integrity is not in doubt. He is blameless. Indeed, in his dialogue with his friends, or at least the first one, he, he speaks in, in, in chapter 6, verse 24, asking him, show me where I have gone wrong, he says. You need to be pretty sure of your innocence before saying that. 
He is a good and a godly man. You would be hard pushed to find a more righteous person if you tried. In fact, God's verdict is that you wouldn't find a more righteous person. It kind of makes everything else that follows all the more puzzling. Yet living as this, living as God intended, as many of us know, is no guarantee that suffering and trials and troubles and disappointments won't come our way. In fact, often it does. Paul writing to Timothy tells us that anyone, anyone who wants to live a godly life will be persecuted. We also see that this righteousness, this way of living, is, 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 is what he desired for his family. And, and, and this is where this study really hit home with me. He's, he's got ten children. Ten children who obviously all go on well with one another. That is something that every parent longs for within their family. And I say that because we were told that they would meet together and they would eat and they would drink and, 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 and like, it's kind of like Ed's experiencing and all. We had this, this massive house filled with people, a large, harmonious family with so, so much wealth. Yet even amidst all of this jobs, a deep, deep concern for the spiritual well-being of his children. To such the extent, to such an extent, that after every time they gathered together, he would send for them and he would ensure he would have them purified and he would offer sacrifice and no doubt he would pray for them in case they had sinned and cursed God, which can equally mean perhaps not. But Job was not taking any chances with the spiritual care of his children. And notice how at the end of the verse, verse 5, we read, this was Job's regular custom. Seems to me that he was a godly example to his children. And it wasn't a now and then thing. It was his custom. It was his habit. He did it continually. Job was a righteous man. Secondly, and we'll be even quicker with this one and then even quicker with the third one, but Job was a rich man. Job has a wife. He's got seven sons, three daughters, 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, 500 donkeys, and a large number of servants. Wow. He is mega rich he is prosperous in every way and the author wants us to know that and I think he wants us to know that for a particular reason for as the book begins to unfold we will see that neither his righteousness nor his riches are any guarantee against the disasters and the trials and the tribulations that life will throw at him Job's Piety and prosperity, I should have just used his headings. The account of Job's piety and prosperity comes before the history 
of his great afflictions to show that neither will secure us from the calamities of human life. And we can see that these riches did not spoil Job. Seems to me that he used them wisely. They certainly didn't hold him back in his pursuit of a godly, upright life. It is not wrong for a Christian to be prosperous. It is not wrong for a Christian to be rich. It is what we do with what we have that matters. And in the Old Testament particularly, often riches were seen as a blessing. They were seen as a reward from God. Yet Job, it appears to me, kind of hangs loosely to them. We see that, I believe, in, 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 in that most remarkable statement at, at, at the end of, of chapter 1. One of the most profound statements of faith in all of the scriptures. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. An older hymn says this, Riches I need not, nor man's empty praise. Thine, thine, mine inheritance, now and always. He was righteous, he was rich, and finally and very, very quickly, he was a renowned man. The end of verse 3, he was the greatest man among all the people of the East. This is a man who had everything. He had faith, he had family, he had fortune, he had fame. There was no one on earth like him. And it would have been so easy. Imagine I was you. It was so easy, is it not? It would be so tempting to kind of let all of these things kind of, especially the fame and fortune, kind of to, to go to your head and, 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 and to get in the way of faith and of faith to live with as here riches. And as we will see as we work our way through his story in time of great trial. Job as in actually all of the Old Testament, serves ultimately to point us towards the Lord Jesus. And in Job, we will see one who blameless, although blameless, suffered greatly. We think on the Lord who was sinless, and suffered greatly. In Job, we will see one who, as it were, was emptied and humbled of everything. And without spoiling it too much, we will eventually see Job, as it were, raised again to even greater glory. Facing the storm, Job was righteous. Job was rich. Job was renowned. And Job had a solid faith in God. May it be so for us.